All right, we are back. We're going to try and talk about obituaries for this segment. A lot of people passed away in 2012, and we didn't get to comment upon all of them. Well, we can't possibly comment upon all of them, but we need to comment upon some of the notables that we didn't get to. But uh, before we do that, I do want to note, having looked it up during the break, that Gangnam Style is a Korean neologism mainly associated with upscale fashion and a lavish lifestyle associated with the trendsetters in Seoul, South Korea's Gagnam district, which is considered the most affluent part of the metropolitan area. In Korea, Gagnam means south, Nam, of the river, Gang, in Korea. According to internet sources we check, Gagnam has become the most wealthy area in the entirety of South Korea. Gagnam is being regarded as the place where people are rich, the girls are pretty, and everything is supposed to be cool. For those of you to whom this was eating away, we can now say, now you know the rest of the story. And in some New Year's breakthrough news on Psy and his perhaps one-hit wonder hit, it's noted that um, on Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve, Psy said it's time for a new hit, noting, the song became too popular, and so you start to have some concern about its life period. He went on, I'm really working hard on a new single right now, and I'm not saying Gagnam is ending on Dick Clark. I still have a lot of invitations to perform it. I'll be in Paris. In February, I got invited to China, and I've still got to do some promo. So let me say that in America, I need a new single because Gagnam style got too popular, so I've got to write a new single. You know, we have to agree. We'd hate to see Psy become a one-hit wonder, and, well, thanks to some of our showbiz connections, we've been leaked what we believe to be Psy's next big hit. All right, speaking of Dick Clark, um, what better way to start off our review of people who passed, some epic people who passed in 2012, than to take a look at the immortal Dick Clark. For many years, Dick Clark was America's host of New Year's Eve when he would uh, commemorate that dropping of the ball in New York's Times Square. And by the way, our New York correspondent had some things to say about uh, the influx of the huge crowds that come into New York City to drink and carouse and to celebrate New Year's Eve in Times Square. Our own Stephen Valentino said that he really loathed this sort of activity. Our New York correspondent Stephen Valentino referred to this influx as the amateur hour. It was noted that years before he was nicknamed America's oldest teenager, Dick Clark found his boyish looks an obstacle to success. He was once fired as a beer pitch man because the brewery owner thought he looked too young to drink. But when Philadelphia television station WFIL wanted a youthful presenter for its teen dance program, Bandstand, it turned to Dick Clark, who later said, I was 26 years old, looked the part, and knew the music. He was working then at an affiliated radio station, and when they said, do you want it? He said, oh man, do I want it. It's hard to imagine now, but American Bandstand ran for 32 years and introduced American audiences to generations of pop stars from Richie Valens to the Monkees to Madonna and Luther Vandross. 
So the New York Times, the show did as much as anyone or anything to advance the influence of teenagers and rock and roll on American culture. In the early 60s, 20 million viewers tuned in every weekday afternoon to watch clean-cut teens dancing to the latest hits and hear Clark deliver his catchphrase, It's got a good beat, and you can dance to it. Clark went on to produce the American Music Awards and TV shows such as TV's Bloopers and Practical Jokes, The $10,000 Pyramid, and New Year's Rockin' Eve, the annual spectacular that began in 1972. While Clark did miss the 2004 show after he had a stroke, every year after that he continued his signature countdown of the final seconds before the clock struck midnight. Dick Clark, he will be missed. All right, we mentioned the passing of uh, Ray Bradbury on this program and did try and refer you, dear listener, to our archives for our wonderful interview that we had with Mr. Bradbury many years ago. He was widely described as the poet laureate of the space age. We do have to laugh in looking back, though, that for all the rockets and robots and his more than 600 short stories and novels, Ray Bradbury was highly skeptical of modern technology. He refused to take elevators and never learned to drive a car. In 2009, he dismissed the Internet as a big distraction. <laughs> but in checking the Planetary Report, the, uh, the publication by the Planetary Society, I was uh, sort of intrigued to see that Lou Friedman wrote that when they were putting together the Planetary Society, I was aware of the fact that he and Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray got together as three scientifically-oriented people to create this group, um, they believe their inspiration came from what they call the ABC, science fiction writers, Asimov, Bradbury, and Clark. Yes, apparently Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Arthur C. Clark urged the scientists to form the Planetary Society because no one else was doing anything about planetary exploration after the Viking missions in 1976. They agreed to help us with personal appearances, writing, and even donations. I did not know that. All right, segueing off of Dick Clark, let's talk about some other uh, music figures that passed away this year. I think we mentioned uh, on this program the passing of Hal David, who along with uh, his writing partner Bert Bacharach produced so many great hits in the 60s. I do want to make passing reference to it again because although I did slam Mr. David for the fact that he is the perpetrator of Do You Know the Way to San Jose, which I'm pretty sure is one of the selections on the jukebox in hell. He did have some good numbers to his credit, including Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, which is pretty tough to dislike. Another song that's pretty tough to dislike, Moon River, which became the signature piece of the late, great Andy Williams, who also left us in 2012. Moon River was written by Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer. Audrey Hepburn introduced it in the 1961 film Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it was Andy Williams who made the song indisputably his own when he sang it at the 1962 Academy Awards ceremony. His career in showbiz began when his father, a railroad mail clerk, heard his four sons harmonizing and became convinced they had a future as professional singers. With their dad as manager, the Williams brothers became a hot property. Bing Crosby hired them to do backing vocals on his 1944 hit, Swinging on a Star. 
The group split in the early 50s, and Andy Williams tried to make it on his own, and uh, a two-year stint on Steve Allen's Tonight Show turned things around for him. In 1962, NBC offered him his own variety program, which ran for nine years. And if you're of a certain age, like myself, you remember the Andy Williams show very well. It was pretty good. Despite the fact that the show largely spurned rock and roll bands in favor of well-scrubbed acts like the Osmond Brothers and Bobby Darren. In my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. Back in the 60s, Bobby Darren and Judy Garland, etc., were still producing some pretty good performances, even though they weren't rock and roll. And the Andy Williams show did have some, uh, some rock and roll acts. Elton John appeared, so did the Mamas and the Papas. I suppose after Moon River, his most famous hit was The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, which was always performed during his annual Christmas specials. Also lost from the music world this year... Earl Scruggs, the banjo virtuoso. According to legend Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music was hunting for a new banjo player when a young musician appeared backstage at a Nashville concert hall asking to audition. Monroe and his guitarist Lester Flatt listened with amazement as the 21-year-old Earl Scruggs picked out lightning-fast runs on his instrument. Flatt told Monroe, If you can, hire him, whatever the cost. Earl Scruggs was to join Bill Monroe and toured with him for many years. In 1948, apparently he and uh, Lester Flatt, tired of low pay and exhausting travel, set out on their own as the Foggy Mountain Boys. The group made some sparkling recordings, such as the Grammy-winning Foggy Mountain Breakdown, used in the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde. Mr. McMillan? Earl Scruggs was something else. I think that's fair to say. And in 2012, the music world lost Howard H. Scott. Who's Howard H. Scott, you ask? Well, he was part of the team at Columbia Records that introduced the long-playing vinyl record back in 1948. Back in 1946, Mr. Scott, age 26, with some musical training and just discharged from the U.S. Army, got a job at Columbia Masterworks, the label's classical division. He soon got assigned to Columbia's top secret project, which was to develop a long-playing record to replace the 78 RPM discs, which could hold only about four minutes of music on each brittle shellac side. The project had begun in 1940 and was nearing completion, but its engineers needed someone with musical training, particularly the ability to read orchestral scores, to help transfer recordings from 78s to the new discs, which played at 33 and a third RPMs. They could hold about 22 minutes aside and were made of more durable vinyl. Howard H. Hilson Scott fit the bill. As a staff producer at Columbia, Mr. Scott worked on hundreds of recordings by most of the major U.S. orchestras. He left Columbia in 1968 and worked at MGM Records, RCA Red Seal, and the Rochester Philharmonic, where he was executive manager in the 1970s. Mr. Scott won a 1966 Grammy Award as as producer of the classical album of the year, Charles Ivers' Symphony No. 1, as performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And by the way, dear listener, if any of you know of any uses for some old 78 records, I mean a good home where they'll get listened to, drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. I've inherited my father's collection of old 78s, and I would like to find them a suitable resting place. 
All right, let's see. Other music. All right, let's see. Some other figures from the music world. We lost Davy Jones last year. According to show business legend, Davy Jones was a promising 18-year-old actor when he appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, along with the cast of the Broadway musical Oliver. After the cast finished their number, Davy heard the audience erupt in screams. But it wasn't for him. It was for the Beatles, also booked on the same show. Davy Jones later said, I saw the girls going crazy and thought to myself, I want a piece of that. <laughs> Soon after that, he gave up the theater and auditioned to be the front man of a made-for-television band called The Monkees. They ended up being the biggest pop act on the planet, outselling The Beatles and The Rolling Stones in 1967. Although initially dismissed in music circles as a television fantasy more than a musical reality, the Monkees did chart nearly two dozen singles after the show debuted on NBC in 1966 and became the first and still only act to score four number one albums on the Billboard chart in the same year. Although Davy Jones no doubt enjoyed his success, he did have to note that he was worried the Monkees' legacy would follow him the rest of his acting life, which I'm sure it did. Back in 2011, he said, My biggest fear years ago when I played Jesus in Godspell was that I'd be dying on the cross one night and someone would yell out, Hey, Davy, do Daydream Believer. We also note the passing in 2012 of jazz great Dave Brubeck. Noted The Economist, To put Dave Brubeck in a box was an unwise thing to do. He'd just jump right out again, big, broad, and strong with those horn-rimmed glasses and that crazy, slightly cross-eyed smile. Call him cool, and he'd tell you that many of his jazz arrangements were so hot they sizzled. Lump him with players of white West Coast jazz, and he'd object that he felt more black than white. Suggest that he was influenced by the pelting intellectual strains of bebop that took over jazz in the 40s, he'd say, nope, he didn't listen to it. Call him the usher of a new jazz age, put him on the cover of Time magazine, where he landed in 1954, and he was crestfallen. Duke Ellington deserved all that, he said, but not him. I think I'm going to leave it up to better qualified people on uh, on KDVS or KZFR, as the case may be, to talk about Dave Brubeck. I just know this. Take five is a hell of a tune, and we're going to use that for our bumper music on this segment. We also note the passing last year of the great Ravi Shankar. Renowned as a virtuoso of the sitar, noted his obituary in the New York Times, through his recitals, as well as recordings on the Columbia and World Pacific labels, Shankar built a Western following for the sitar. Interest in the instrument exploded in 1965 when George Harrison of the Beatles encountered a sitar on the set of Help, the Beatles' second film, and intrigued by the instrument's complexity, he learned its rudiments and used it on a Beatles recording, Norwegian Wood. The Rolling Stones, the Animals, the Birds, and other rock groups quickly followed suit, though few went as far as Harrison, who recorded several songs that appeared on Beatles albums with Indian musicians rather than his bandmates. By the summer of 1967, the sitar was in vogue in the rock world. Noted one thing I was not aware about, uh, Rabbi Shankar, he eventually came to regard his participation in rock festivals like Woodstock as a mistake. Looking back, he said he deplored the use of his music, which has its roots in ancient spiritual tradition, as a backdrop for drug-taking. All right, who else? Henry Hill died last year. Noted his obit when Warner Brothers approached writer Nick Pileggi to make his book Wise Guy into a movie. He had to come up with another title. 
since a TV show already had that name. Pileggi asked the book's subject, Henry Hill, what other name his fellow mobster went by. Hill's answer? Goodfellas. And that became the title of the movie that would make him one of the most famous wise guys of all. Henry Hill had said worked with New York's Lucchese crime family, selling drugs, shaking down storekeepers, and stealing jewelry. He was a part of the gang that in 1978 stole $5.8 million from a Lufthansa terminal at JF Kennedy Airport. At, time, at that time, it was the largest cash robbery in U.S. history. The feds caught up with Henry Hill in 1980. According to the Washington Post, he was, they arrested him for drug trafficking. Facing a lifetime in jail, he decided to talk. Hill's testimony sent over 50 mafiosi to jail and made him a turncoat with a price on his head. He entered the Federal Witness Protection Program and lived under assumed names in Nebraska, Kentucky, and Washington State. Said the New York Times, but he really couldn't hire his true nature. He was arrested at least six times for burglary and drug possession while under the Witness Protection Program, which he left in 1987. At the time of his death, he was living openly in California, making money by selling Goodfellas mugs and aprons on his website. But I got to round up the story from a friend of mine who somehow, I'm not sure how this happened, became acquainted while he was in the witness protection program with Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano. Apparently at some later point in time, she saw him in an airport and tried to, tried to say, Jimmy, how you doing? <laughs> at which time he pretended not to know her. This does allow me to segue into the David Letterman comment made many years ago when Jimmy the Weasel entered the Witness Protection Program, at which time Dave said, Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano has now been given an entirely new identity. From this point forward, he will be known as Jimmy the Ferret Fratiano. Who else? Boxing fixture Burt Sugar passed away last year. He was described as a deliberate throwback to the era of Damon Runyon and Ring Lardner. But it was noted that behind the caricature of a hard-drinking, wise-cracking raconteur was a serious student of boxing. Sugar graduated from the University of Maryland and earned a law degree and business degree from the University of Wisconsin. He passed the bar in Washington, but the only purpose that served his career was to set up his oft-repeated line that that was the only bar I ever passed. He moved to New York City. After working in advertising for almost a decade in the early 70s, he bought Boxing Illustrated, which he said he edited well, but ran as a business badly. Said ESPN.com, Sugar possessed one priceless and seemingly vanishing skill, the ability to tell a story at a bar. Said USA Today, storytelling, Sugar believed, was vital to the writing craft. Said he... Sports writing is almost an extinct species, or soon to be. It was a state of affairs he blamed partly on blogs that imposed, quote, no space restraint, unquote, and are written so quickly that there's no time for cerebral thinking on an article. But according to Sugar, young writers, even teetotalers, could learn the trade by hanging out in bars and listening to their elders. Yes, Sugar certainly did define the term raconteur. I do want to note one more obituary before we take a break. That from the Sydney Morning Herald about the passing of Milt Campbell, athletic legend. The 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne, Milt Campbell was the first African-American to become an Olympic decathlon champion. Milt Campbell never became as famous as four other Americans who became Olympic decathlon champions, 
Bob Mathias twice, Rayford Johnson and Bill Toomey, along with Bruce Jenner. Those four got acclaimed as the world's greatest athlete and received endorsement contracts and acting roles. Milt Campbell, in contrast, remained virtually unknown. There are various explanations for this. One was the Olympics were not televised as extensively as they would be later, 1956. Another is he spent a large part of his career playing American football in Canada. But yet another is he would alienate people with his outspokenness about racial discrimination. Milt Campbell did play with the Cleveland Browns in 1957, an NFL team. But in 1958, as he later recalled, he was called into the office of the team's coach who wanted to know why Campbell had just married a white woman, Barbara Mount. Campbell said he told the coach it was none of his business. The next day, the Browns cut him. He went to Canada where he played with several football teams until 1964. Campbell later became a motivational speaker with failure in business as his own motivation. Said he, when I lost all my money in the meat trucking business in 1976, I realized that I understood about success and failure. I realized that it had nothing to do with anyone else, only me. Milt Campbell was later elected to the National Track and Field Hall of Fame, that was in 1989, and the U.S. Olympics Hall of Fame in 1992. We got more obituaries. Let's take a short break. (laughs) 